HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Domain. Domain offers discreet and secure storage, transportation, trading, and advisory services to passionate fine wine collectors worldwide. For more information, visit DomainStorage.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, uh, and I'm just going to get right into it today because I'm so excited. We have such a special guest in the studio. We have Antonio Galoni. He's going to talk about Venice Media, um, their recent acquisition of uh, Delectable and Banquet. And what I'm really most excited about in just a couple of weeks, La Festa di Barolo 2017, it is the, an event that I look forward to every single year. I get to participate as a sommelier. Um, and for those of you who don't know Antonio, he is one of the world's most influential wine critics and educators, really. Um, uh, he's someone whose career I've been following since I worked at Italian Wine Merchants in 2005. And we would get his Piedmont report, and all of us would huddle around it and, and hide highlighted and read it and discuss it, and it was just a great source of information for us back then when um, we needed, and we still do need, more uh, informed voices uh, talking about wine, writing about wine, educating us. Um, he's someone who's been a big proponent of, of media um, with outstanding videos on his website, Venice, and I'm going to stop talking and just welcome Antonio. Thank you so much for, for coming to In the Drinks today. Really excited. Joe, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, so your first foray into wine, at least I know, is the Piedmont Report. Um, how did you get interested uh, in uh, uh, Piedmont wines uh, specifically? Well, when I was a kid, my dad told me there were two great wines in the world, Barolo and Champagne. So <laughs> that's really the long and short of it. Uh, my parents had a wine shop when I was a kid. I grew up with it. I would look at these labels, and I was fascinated by all of the words on a label, and I wanted to understand what every word was. So that was the beginning of, of wine. Uh, my my mom's father had a little bit, he had a corporate career, he had a little bit more refined taste. He, he liked a lot of French wines. Mm -hmm. And 
so there was always something on the table on Sunday. Maybe it was a Cote Roti or a Burgundy. Maybe not the greatest of wines, but certainly really nice wines. And uh, that was just the beginning of falling in love with the things that are important to me about wine, history, tradition, place, and all of those things that you see on a label that you want to understand uh, where wine is from, the vintage, who made it, the family, the grape, et cetera, et cetera. And that stayed with you in your mind, because I, I think you also, as a ex champagne expert, obviously your expertise spans all over the world in champagne and Venice, I know covers the, the entire world at this point of champ of, uh, uh, of wine. Um, but that's amazing that those words kind of stayed with you. I, I could just picture like your, your dad, like son, we need to have a talk, <laughs> not the birds and the birds and bees. No, no champagne and Barolo. That's what the best wine of the world. Yeah. They, they weren't the greatest of champagnes or, 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 or Barolos, but it was just the idea, you know, my, mm -hmm. for my, for my dad, Barolo was always still is today. I mean, one of my favorite things is to drink a great bottle of wine with my dad now, but it was still this wine to be, it was the wine of Kings, the wine to, you know, for a special occasion. And, and there was something special about those wines. And you know what a great Nebbiolo is like that aromatic intensity, this sort of, Sometimes you open a wine and the whole room can smell of mm -hmm. perfume and they're just such exotic and beautiful wines. And I was just very lucky that my parents introduced me to those wines at a really young age, taught me to value how special an artisan they were. And that was really the beginning of it. So I grew up with wine my whole life. Uh, I worked in restaurants uh, before sommeliers were around. So I was a little older than a lot of people, but sort of dating myself. It was before, you know, it's one of my great regrets is that I never worked in a great restaurant as a sommelier because I think that's got to be an amazing experience. But I was a waiter and I sold a lot of wine and I just was around wine all the time. And then I had a career in finance and it took me to Italy about 15 years ago, but it was before the Euro and, and, um, the you know, dollar was very strong and I was taking people out to dinner all the time. And I just call, I started writing about wine just to keep track of my own wines that I had tasted, then I would share those with friends and they seemed to find interest in those wines, in those notes. And then when I went to business school, all of my friends told me I had to do what I loved and that it was wine. So I just started writing about wine for fun and that became a newsletter. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's how we got the Piedmont Court. I know that you, you kind of glossed over a time in your in your life where you're a musician. Yeah. Uh, and you went to probably the, the best uh, music school in, in America. And uh, I read in your bio, you said that that was actually really influential in informing your, your love of wine and your career later on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, music school was great. Um, I learned a lot. I was not a very talented musician, so that forced me to be really resourceful. And so I started writing music because I learned that if I wrote, there were not a lot of people at Berkeley writing original music. And my roommate was my roommate who, who really inspired me to do this at the time. He said, if you write original works, you'll attract the best players. So I started studying composition and writing my own music. And that uh, enabled me to play with musicians who were well above my own pay grade. Uh, and so that was a great experience. That was a really good experience in leadership, getting people together building teams. But I think what I really learned about in music was I had a teacher who was an old cranky guy. And I took a class on the Bartok string quartets, which is a very intense music. And this guy was really old and cranky and very un PC. Probably half of the things he said today would get him, you know, fine at a normal school. But one of the things he taught me was he said, you should take one day a week and listen to music you don't like. And and this was to me about really having broad horizons. And it, the reason it translates into music is because, for me, quality is never stylistic. 
it's always there's there's style of wine, but then quality is a is a level as a layer of information that sits above that, mm-hmm. which means that to me anyway, there's great wines made in all styles and there's poor wines made in all styles. So I had a great four years at Berkeley. I played in the in Berkeley's country band. I played in a rock band that was more goth like Cure U two influenced. Um, before that, I had played jazz three years in a big band in high school. I would love to have seen you in a goth band. I think yeah. of you as a refined intellectual and, no, God, just going after it. Uh, that was great. I mean, we, we had a rehearsal space in Boston and a warehouse space not unlike this neighborhood in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it was in the back bay and maybe not the safest place to walk at 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, we, we played colleges and it was really fun. Mm-hmm. But, but it was basically the, the music experience was about participating in music in a lot of different realms. Um, so I played in a lot of different types of, 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 of ensembles in college, everything really from country to much more rock, rock type music. And then when I moved to Italy, I started, I studied opera singing as well. So for me, music has always been really important. And in fact, a lot of what I want Venice to be is very artistic expression of wine, because I think that, um, most wine writing is pretty boring to read. Mm -hmm. And so I want our site to be very vibrant with maps, with photographs, with video, with things that are really engaging. And I think a lot of that is going back to the idea of music and the idea of being wanting to have something that's create a creative outlet, not just information. It makes a lot of sense. And in the part of early part of my career, when I was really focused on taking formal classes, I did a couple of years of the MW program and all of that. The, the, the thing that I most fond look back on those things most fondly about is the opening up to different styles. I would not have paid attention to wines from certain parts of the world that, uh, that, that I'm glad I did. I'm glad I learned about those things, but are you, do you find that you're allowed to have a preference of style for yourself or do you or do you or at least publicly can you talk about that or is it since you cover everything um well i don't cover everything i mean there's areas that are more near and dear to my heart mm-hmm. and there's places that i wish i knew more about i wish i could spend more time with german wine mm-hmm. you know we had a beautiful 04 cota sancerre a couple of days ago that i love but i really don't know much about loire wine so we don't cover everything i mean maybe our publication does but i'm certainly not well-versed on all styles of wine. There's plenty of things that I wish I knew more about that I, I can enjoy, let's say, as a civilian. Mm-hmm. But to me, wine is about sharing. And I think wine has a wonderful ability to bring people together, unlike very many other, very, unlike other, there's not too many things like it, let's just say. So I like to, when I am looking for a wine to open at my house, I always think, what will my guest enjoy? Mm. I don't think of myself and therefore I like, because I get to taste pretty much whatever anyway. So I like to have a diversified cellar that has everything from the most ripe, rich, hedonistic California wines to the most elegant Nebbiolos, champagne from grower to, to, uh, to big house, because I'm not opening those wines for me. I'm opening those wines for somebody else really. And I want people to have something that they enjoy. So, you would have made a great sommelier. Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, one so, of my... so the big uh, issue that you see so many times, a lot of times sommeliers choose their personal preference over what, what guests would like. And then you have so many guests who aren't articulate enough uh, about, you know, they're not able to say what they'd like. But uh, it sounds like that is like exactly the right approach that someone should take as a sommelier. Yeah, I mean, you know, so when I, I have because of the other stages of my life that are not in wine, I've got a lot of friends who are not in the wine business at all or involved in wine. 
And I would see when I would open for them maybe a Chablis or a Grower Champagne or something that's not necessarily an immediate wine. If I explained to them what the wine was all about, that the light bulb would go off. And so then I started to think, well, how do you make a million light bulbs go off? And that's about tuning into what turns people on. I think a lot of times wine critics are criticized. Maybe in some cases it's, it's correct, but they're trying to impose a taste on somebody else. And to me, that's not at all what we try to do. We try to help people figure out the wines that they're going to like. So therefore, maybe, you know, if we've got friends coming over and they've read about Sina Quanan and they've never had a chance to open one of those wines, maybe that's what I'll open. Or um, maybe I know that they like older wines, so I'll open an older wine. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I know that they like Blanc de Blanc Champagne. Or maybe I know that they would be curious to discover... Uh, an up-and-coming grower that is where the prices aren't really expensive. So I always think about the the person, and therefore, um, you know, I enjoy a lot of different styles of wine. Not everything. I mean, you know, I'm not a huge fan of California Cabernets with perceptible sugar that are black and inky. So yeah, we can say that for sure. But I think that there's not that that is also a bit of a old school style. I mean, it's yeah. an older style now that's kind of phasing out a little bit. Uh, so, yeah, there's definitely things that I like and I don't like. But, I mean, basically, I think um, wine is a product of a place. So I guess the wines I like the most are wines that have personality and that speak to something that is not reproducible. Yeah, one of the things I love about Venice is you give so much context to it. Um, talking about California wines, too, you actually brought these beautiful maps uh, made with uh, uh, just the, the top Italian Cartographer is that what Masnagetti is yeah. going to be uh, with Alessandro Masnagetti? These beautiful maps of the Napa Valley, um, and for you, those of you guys who don't know, Masnagetti is an Italian-based cartographer who, just, uh, who really, I think, I think he started with Barolo, right? Yeah. Like mapping out all the vineyards of uh, vineyards of Barolo in just loving, exacting detail. I've spoken with winemakers who just admire him so much for his attention to detail, and what a cool project that you've uh, that you've brought this to the Napa Valley. Yeah, so you know, I got about it, yeah. I got you know tired of getting lost and not knowing where mm -hmm. what was whose, and I thought this is absurd. You know, Napa Valley is is extremely diverse. I mean, most people think of Highway 29, the Silverado Trail, and right. the towns like Yountville and St Helena, Napa that have a lot of restaurants and a lot of tasting rooms. But you know, there's basically two mountain ranges: um, one on the east, one on the west. Then the foothills, which are basically the runoff of the soils from those mountains, and then the flat part in the middle. Napa Valley is much more diverse geologically and in terms of soils than most people realize. And I thought, you know, there's no maps for Napa Valley. I mean, there are no vineyard maps. There's a few isolated regions that have maps, but they're always done by chambers of commerce or groups that have a, a commercial or marketing angle. And so if you're not a dues, if you're not paying your dues to the association, your map might not be on the, your, your, your vineyard's not going to be They'll on the map. They'll just leave you out of it. Yeah, and that wow. sort of stuff, which is not our mission. Our mission is purely educational. So I thought, let's do really great Napa Valley maps and... Um, and we had done digital maps of Piedmont that were good, but they weren't. They were like B or B plus work. They weren't our best. And I, I, uh, I mean, they were very good, but they weren't. I, I wanted something of a higher level mm -hmm. for this project. And so I thought, well, who do I want to work with on these maps? And Alessandro is the guy. So um, we started chatting a couple years ago, and now we've got six maps. Some more coming in 2017. Wow. And these are the first maps that really show you exactly where the vineyards are by by owner. Mm -hmm. um, 
the detail's incredible. Yeah, with and so we've got Kelly White, yeah. who's written a phenomenal book on Napa Valley. She's oh, part yeah. of our team as well. She does an enormous amount of the, the, the legwork and collecting information, fact-checking. Uh, and so it's just been tremendous. It's a real team effort, and, and um, it's just been a real joy to work on these And there's not just maps. the map, but also your, your text that you write yeah, each so one of them as well. Exactly. So there's a map on the front that shows you, like the Burgundy maps, like the Barolo maps, you know, who owns what where. And then the back is a history of each appellation, uh, you know, the history of Rutherford, Thomas Rutherford, Inglenook, et cetera, et cetera, the history of Stags Leap, Claude Duval, the Judgment of Paris, the Chase family, you know, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, you know, Oakville has a very rich history as well. I mean, you're, uh, uh, Howell Mountain, we did a map that was an enormous amount of research there to mm-hmm. the land, going back to the land grants of the 1800s. The fact that Howell Mountain was originally chosen as for its timber to develop the valley. So um, it's there's a lot of history in these areas, and I think that the the regions are worthy of first class maps and. You know, we've tried to do that. Hopefully, we've been successful at it. I think they're extraordinary. Where, yeah. where can our listeners find these? Yeah, so Venice.com has all of the maps available. They're available in a sort of a poster size, uh, which we ship rolled so that there's no creases. And then there's a, there's a, a folded version. Uh, and then we've got a, a few limited first editions that are signed by me and Alessandro as well. But most, most of the time, the folded or the, or, or the frameable ones are the ones that people get. Okay. And you have to be a member on Venice? Absolutely to... not. Those are available to the public. Okay. Yeah. Well, another reason to check out the site. But it is worth being a member because the, the content is absolutely extraordinary. Um, okay. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more with Antonio Galoni. That's so exciting on In the Drink just after this. Domain offers discreet and secure storage, transportation, trading, and advisory services to passionate fine wine collectors worldwide. Since 2003, they've focused on making collecting easier and more enjoyable. With over 1.8 million bottles in storage across five facilities, Domain is the largest network of wine storage warehouses in the country. Warehouses are located in Chicago, St. Louis, Metro New York, Napa, and Washington, D.C., with refrigerated shipment hubs in dozens of cities. Their service also extends to the home collector. In the last decade, the team has organized and inventoried more than 1.7 million bottles in home sellers across the globe. Recently, Domain has launched a marketplace where clients can buy and sell wine. Trading in the network ensures that wines are stored at Domain facilities and the commissions are the lowest in the industry. Go to DomainStorage.com to complete an online questionnaire and someone will get back to you within one business day. All right, we are back on In the Drink with Antonio Galoni. Um, the, well, the reason that I invited him here today, other than the fact that I've been dying to, to sit down and chat with Antonio, is really to talk about the La Festa di Barolo event that's coming up February 3rd and 4th um, here in New York City. Uh, I am honored to be a sommelier at this, uh, at this event once again. Um, and he's brought in 15 of Barolo's greatest producers. I mean, uh, I know every sommelier who's, uh, who is participating in this and, and the guests who have been years before are just ecstatic to see these guys uh, once again. Um, but can you tell us about how the La Festa di Barolo event started and what, what we can expect this year? Well, Joe, we, you know, we started doing events um, a few years back because I would go to events and as, a, as an attendee. And frankly, I was often not fully satisfied with the experience. Um, and sometimes I'd get hired to do events for other people. And if something wasn't right, like the room was too full or the champagne that was served wasn't good, it would ultimately reflect on me. 
And so I just said to my wife, it was about five or six years ago, you know, we really ought to start doing these ourselves so that we can be, I mean, if we make a mistake, at least it'll be our mistake. And, and, you know, we're not taking the heat for other people's, um, choices. So Festa del Barolo started with the idea that there was really no place for people who love Italian wine to get together and open their great bottles of wine. And it really was a whim. I mean, my wife almost killed me or divorced me when we did the first one because it was organized in a really short time frame. Sort of, I sort of said, gee, wouldn't it be fun to do this? <laughs> and it turned into this event that was like, I think in 2011 or so. But the idea is about, um, really about education. So the first thing about Festa del Barolo is that we do a tasting of a single vintage but it's not a walk around tasting. It's a seated masterclass tasting. And the reason we do that is that um, I, th I feel that at walk around tastings, there's the temptation. And let's face it, we're all wine lovers and consumers at the end. There's such a strong temptation to go to the rarest wine, mm -hmm. the hardest to find wine, the most expensive wine, and maybe not pay attention to the lesser quote unquote producers. And you see this all the time. People just want to, and there's unfortunately, you know, sometimes people just want to say, I just tasted Latour or Ikem or Sassicaia or Monfortino. And I thought that that was a disservice to the, to the other wines. And so we, when we do our tasting, it's a seeded tasting on purpose because I want every wine to be presented on the same terms, which is every wine is served to you in, in its own glass at the right temperature and then you decide whether you like it or not. But there's not this, oh, I've got to get to this table before they run out of wine kind mm -hmm. of thing. Everybody gets to taste all the wines in ideal conditions. So that, so since our mission is to be educational, uh, I wanted that tasting to have a high educational value. So that's one of the events. That's on a Saturday afternoon this year. And then... Uh, and, I, and all of the producers, one of the things I love about it is you have all of the produce, 15 producers there, and they all talk about their wine in the, vint, in the vintage. They're kind of on a, a panel. That's right. And you get to hear a really a, a great amount of firsthand information from all of them, and you interject and, and ask uh, really great questions. And so that that's really special. I find with walk-around tastings, me as well, like... Um, wine is very social for me. And so I end up like talking to people and then I don't get to taste stuff I wanted to taste or spend more time on some things and not enough times on other things. So this is a great way to really understand the entire vintage. And with Barolo, vintage is so important. Yep. Um, so so I, I, I love that event. Yeah, so we do that. And, and so what that does, though, one of the things that that does, you mentioned, we do have 15 producers on the panel. And that does limit the, the size of the event. So you Because I would love for Festa del Barolo to be 30 or 40 producers, or maybe to include Barbaresco or to include Nebbiolo from Alto Piemonte or other regions. But we frankly struggled with the way to do that and maintain the educational mission of the event because I do want people to taste uh, the wines on even terms and I do want people to have a chance to listen to the producers talk and we've had some amazing moments like the first Festival Barolo when Beppe Rinaldi came over he got a passport just for that event we didn't know until the last minute if he was going to come you know and when he spoke you could hear a pin drop because all of the psalms came out from the back the room was really quiet and that experience uh, was really, I mean, I've visited him many times as you have and other people have, but for people who've never heard him speak, it was a, like a life changing moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think it's really much of a, um, that surprising that that's pretty much when these wines started to become unfindable in the market was it after really that. It really is. Yeah, yeah. I blame you. <laughs> um, I'm, you can't see mad. I'm, I'm wagging my fist. I get, less, right I get less than I used to too, but but so that's what we aim to transmit with the Festa del Barolo moments, 
moments, things that are irreplaceable. They have no value. The moment listening to this man speak uh, was pretty amazing. Yeah. So, so that's the scene. And this year, his daughters will be there. This year, his daughter, yeah, daughters will be there. Yeah. And uh, they've been coming now for a few years. And we've got other producers that, that, um, that are come well. We've got Roanya coming for the first time, oh, Roanya, and yeah. Alessandro Fantino. Hopefully, will be able to come last this time. Last time he had a he had a bit of a health issue, so okay. this will be the first time he's there. Who worked uh, at Bartolo Mascarello? He for made the years. wines there with Bartolo for a number of years. Yeah, um, and now makes his own. Um, Conterno. Conterno. Uh, Roberto, Roberto will be there, but you know, I'm thinking about the lesser known. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Last year, my table was Berlotto, and he's like, I was starstruck. Yeah, so, I get starstruck for like actors. But, yeah, so Berlotto, uh, so the, the dinner Berlotto. that you're talking about, that's more oh, yeah, of yeah. a concept bar, a bar from La Palais, which is an after the harvest celebration in France that's since been sort of mutated here in this country to more of a BYOB kind of dinner. And so that's what this is. That's that's all of the producers at a, at a table. But even here, Joe, what's really important to me is that people have a very intimate experience. So the tables are always round. On purpose. I like that. Okay, so that way you, everybody can see each other. Yeah. They're not big banquet rectangular tables where you can only really yeah. talk to the people in your vicinity. So, so for me, the concepts of that dinner have to be absolutely have to have round tables unless it's, you know, well, it's always round tables unless the space wouldn't allow it technically. But we want round tables where people can see each other. And we want, want the ratio of producers to guests to be 1 to 10, more or less, which is much lower than at a lot of other similar events like this. Mm-hmm. So you really are having a dinner. If you're seated at that burlotto table, you're really having dinner with him. You're really having dinner with Luciano Sandrone. You're really having dinner with Silvia Altara. You're really having dinner with Roberto Conterno. You can ask them whatever you want. Um, and people bring extraordinary wines. The last year was the most extraordinary of all because... You know, usually I can get a sense of the room before the event starts and I can get a sense of which tables are going to be just absolutely dynamite and which tables, you know, um, maybe there's a little bit less wine or I'm not sure how it's going to work out. And last year I walked around at the end of the event and I saw the most amazing bottles on every single table. Every table. And it was just amazing. And so people will bring out all of their wines that they've been saving, all of the, you know, the the rare wines. So not necessarily expensive because I think, unfortunately, there's this idea that wine price and rarity kind of have to go hand in hand. I saw a lot of wines that uh, at the last Festa del Barolo that were rare, but not necessarily expensive yeah. when they were bought, like things like older Capilanos and, and things like that. So you, you see just incredible uh, generosity, incredible sharing. People sharing. It people feels, sharing. It's the real nature of yeah. great wine. And people bringing magnums and large formats. So that's more of a, a party. But the, the, the producers each bring two bottles of two wines that are not current releases. And so that's also fun because then you have a out chance of their to, cellar, out of their cellar, so you get a chance to taste yeah, some pretty neat wines at the tables, and then the p- bottles get passed around inevitably, and it turns into turns into turns into a big celebration. But I think even there, you know, one of the things that's fun is that people have made lifelong friends mm-hmm. from people that they've met. Um, we see because I every time I'm in Piedmont in, in, in August and then in November, I see a lot of people from La Festa del Barolo who then go visit Piedmont. So what we're looking for uh, and what we try to do always at Venice is we look for things where it's win-win for everybody. So, you know, we have 50 sommeliers from New York and around the United States who come here. They make great relationships with these producers. They get a chance to taste a, a, an amazing amount of wines. 
but the winemakers also get to show their wines to the sommeliers. And you know how it is. It's very hard to get in front of a lot of your colleagues. Right. So it's, a very, it's very beneficial for everybody. The attendees taste amazing wines. They get to meet the winemakers. Then they book their trips, their visits for the next years, and they get to know. The, so so it's, it's, um, it's an event where all, it's very synergistic. I love it. I look forward to it every year. I get to hang out with my favorite smallies, the ones I look up to, the best ones, and get to meet the greatest producers of Barolo. Uh, the guests are all, they're, they're just, they're, they tend to be like really just cool, wonderful guests. And obviously the wine is, is outstanding. I, I tell a lot of our uh, guests at the restaurants I've worked at and, and people I know are wine enthusiasts about it because I obviously love to, to see them there. Something that I heard recently from someone who they're, they're going to go to the the 2012 panel, but they're not coming to dinner. He said, you know what? I don't have enough great large format. Like I don't have great large format old Barolo in my cellar, so I'm just going to go to the panel. But like, What would you tell someone who wants to go doesn't really feel like they have anything that's of the caliber that you know that they're is a little intimidated by what everyone else is bringing maybe well we definitely do not want people to feel ever intimidated you know we've really worked hard to keep the price of this dinner it's much lower than it's not an inexpensive dinner but it is much lower than all of the other similar things that happen that are like it uh we don't want you know it's a tricky um it's a tricky subject because we don't want it to be unaffordable, mm-hmm. either the dinner or make people feel like they've got to bring the most expensive collectible wine. You know, I don't really think it's about the, that. I think that, that Barolo is still a wine that is um, affordable next to the great other great wines of the I world. I agree, a relative yeah. value. Exactly. And I would say find a, you know, a lot of the merchants will go to the, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of the wine sellers in New York go to this event. And I would just, you know, if somebody wants to go, I'd say, you know, go to Chamber Street, go to Crush, right. you know, go to Zaki's, tell them you're coming to the Festival of Barolo and ask them to help you out, pick out a couple of wines that that are going to be good, but they don't have to be Monfortino from the 60s, right? you know, um, but a lot of the, a lot of the retailers will come to this event, so they know what it's about. And, you know, I, I think, you know, find somebody that you like to work with that you can trust. It's, it could be Italian wine merchants. It could be any any of these folks who are really talented, morels, et cetera, et cetera, and tell them what you want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm going to Festival Barolo. I need a good bottle or two. What should I get? This is my budget. And and any regular retailer will set you up and you'll be fine. And, you know, they'll, they'll be happy to do it because they, they'll, there's, uh, I think, a great camaraderie in the wine business. I, I agree. They'd be excited to do that. Yeah, and you can find, especially at some of those places you mentioned, <laughs> well-aged Nebbiolo, well-aged Barolo, maybe not from the, the top producer, top vintage, but it's a great value. Do you think, what, what do you think? I've heard a few people talk about Barolo. Uh, I know you agree that it's a, it's a great value compared to the other world's great wines. Do you think that the cost of it is going to increase drastically the way I've heard some other people predict in the coming years? I think, I think so because people are, you know, if we had another half hour, I could tell you the whole deal, but basically global warming and climate change Mm -hmm. have been very favorable to Nebbiolo because the grapes ripen much better than they used to. And that means you can open a 2008 Barolo today and actually drink it, whereas the wines that my dad liked when I was a kid were hard as nails. Mm -hmm. So people are are buying the wines, they're tasting them, they're saying, wow, I like this, they're buying more, and it's creating an enormous amount of demand for these wines at, at the time, at the same time where other artisan wines like Burgundy and Rhone wines are skyrocketing in price, the availability for those best wines is very tight also. And so some of that is is also inflating the prices for the top Piedmont wines. 
Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah and uh, we should say Antonio went to uh, business school at MIT, so he could probably write a dissertation on it. So thank you for keeping that, <laughs> keeping that bri- as brief as possible. Um, I, I did want to ask you about uh, the acquisition of Delectable and, and Banquet. Delectable is something that I use all the time. I know I, all the as I know uh, my friends in the industry use it. It's great to you know not only share um in the way that other social media apps are, are great with for sharing but for me just documenting what i've what i've kept and reminding me of you know my own notes uh, on online what what led up to like why do you think that was a good uh, uh acquisition how did that lead up uh to that can you tell us about that well sure i mean i just you know i think that they we've admired th- that app for a long time in fact when we built our own app um I gave the designer some screenshots from Delectable, mm-hmm. and I said, make it look something like this. Cool. It's very beautiful. It works very well. It's very elegant. And so we've always um, admired it. And when, when the opportunity came up to buy the company, it was, um, or buy the assets, it was uh, something that we couldn't pass up. There's great reach. Um, I think people are very uh, loyal to it. And that is something that we've also seen in the, with the people who work there. There's a, just a tremendously positive vibe around mm-hmm. Delectable. And... Um, and we just saw an opportunity to really reach an enormous number of people and to also improve it because for free, for people like you who use it a lot, I think that there's features that we can add to make it easier to, for example, sort through your old notes and, and categorize your stuff. So we just saw, saw an opportunity to do a lot of upgrades to it uh, without changing the fundamental nature. So the biggest question I've got is, you know, are you going to make this a, a, you know, an app that you have to pay for? Mm. And, and the very short answer is no. We're going to leave all the functionality exactly as it is. We want people to use it. We want people to use it a lot, uh, but then we're going to add different bells and whistles to it in the coming months, and hopefully make it even better oh, and cool. more fun to use. Anything you can tell us about, or they'll be surprised. Well, you know, we've started to add little bits of Venice content onto Delectable, oh, cool. like for example, um, you know, things like you know. Uh, some thoughts on finding value in California Cabernet Sauvignon, since that's a wine that people are drinking now along, uh, around the holidays. For New Year's, uh, we'll have a piece on champagne. Uh, top values in Chianti Classico will be on there. So there'll be just little snippets, you know, five or ten uh, of of our favorite wines. We've got all of our wines under $25 now on, on that app. Um, so we call those Venice favorites over on Venice. So we've ported that over. So now you can find, you know, beautiful Suave, you know, because I fundamentally believe that wine does not have to be expensive to be delicious. So every week on Venice, we have a wine under $25. And so now those wines are going to be, those wines now appear on Delectable too. Mm-hmm. So it's about bringing everything together and making it a little bit more seamless. And, you know, I mean, who doesn't want a, an inexpensive wine that tastes delicious? We taste a lot of them, and we want to share those with everybody. All right. Uh, that's, I think that's all the time we have today. Okay. Um, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show, Antonio Galoni. Uh, I just want to remind everyone that there, I believe there's still our tickets left for La Festa di Bordo 2017. You can find them on the Venice website. Um, you should also subscribe to Venice. Uh, and if you love beautiful, informative maps, uh, congratulations on, on these, these beautiful maps, the partnership you've done with Mesnaghetti. Uh, they're, they're outstanding. Um, guys, uh, Antonio Galoni, this has been such a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for your time. Um, and thanks to all of you for listening. I want to thank uh, Dave Tadashore and uh, Aaron Fairbanks and all, the whole team from Heritage Radio Network. And thanks so much to our sponsor, Wines of Bordeaux. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Awesome.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.